feast of tabernacles in uh, Gunnersville State Park, but I learned the other day there are now more than 500 brethren on the extended church tape program. So every time we speak here, sermonette or sermon, you're really speaking to a pretty good-sized crowd. I was just thinking as we were singing that last song, I received a letter about, uh, well, it's been quite a while ago now that I did respond to, from a cousin of Mrs. Dwight Armstrong, Karen Armstrong, who was the former Karen Hill, John Hill's sister. And I had not known this until a matter of weeks ago, so I would like to convey it to you and ask you to remember it in your prayers. My uncle Dwight Armstrong, I found by that letter, has bone cancer, uh, apparently incurable. I don't know to what stage it has developed, but he was apparently, according to this lady who is a cousin of Mrs. Karen Armstrong, very down and very defeated over it, and uh, in a considerable amount of pain that could only be alleviated apparently by strong dosages of aspirin and so on. I wrote up there and sent a letter which I hope could be given to him, and I will try to get a hold of him if I possibly can, but I would like to mention that to you. A lot of you have never seen or met, I don't think, Dwight Armstrong. He is my father's younger brother and the twin brother of his sister, uh, now why can't I think, I'm, I'm trying to think Mabel and that isn't it, but in any event, uh, they lived, Mary, of course, I'm thinking Mabel, which is the other sister that died in, in her youth. But Dwight and Mary were twins, and uh, my father had one other brother who was younger than he and older than Dwight, who died about two years ago. Russell Armstrong was his name. So uh, one by one, uh, that generation is, uh, of course, passing from the living. I wanted to mention Mr. Dart is up in Albuquerque and then later on in Denver over this weekend, and I expect to hear from him in a couple of days. We're having some new growth in the church just about everywhere around the Church of God International. Just hearing from some of our friends up here in Texarkana that we've had a few new people beginning to come there after the campaign that I had up there some months ago. I've been thinking about a concept that is held by thousands in the Church of God both the Worldwide Church and the Church of God International, thinking very deeply as a result of certain things that have happened recently. If I were to ask you, what is the work of Elijah? If I were to propose that Elijah is here and that the work of Elijah is going on, what would you say is to characterize the work of Elijah? If you suppose that this church or that church leader or this person whom you feel is an evangelist or a prophet or an apostle is doing the work of Elijah, you would say, well, the hallmark of the work of Elijah is found over in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, isn't it? Where it plainly says that Elijah is to come and that unless he came and did certain specific things God would smite the earth with a terrible curse. Now, many of the commentaries wax very eloquent about these two verses, saying that they are a thunderous conclusion to the Old Testament of the Bible, and that they re-echo the entire statement of the Old Testament of the Bible, that unless men obey what is stated herein, Almighty God in his wrath will descend upon the earth in the great and terrible day of the Lord, and mankind will be forfeit. Chapter 4, verse 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet 
before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That means any time after the tribulation and the heavenly signs, but just before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, the book of Revelation is divided into several parts. It is a perfect series of threes and sevens, and prophecy generally is divided into tribulation, heavenly signs, and the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is God's wrath, and this great personage, Elijah, is to come before the time of God's wrath. And he shall do certain things. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Many people would say, if I were to propose, behold, Elijah is here today. Well, the work that Elijah is to do is characterized by the restoration of families. It's characterized by the healing of the breach between mother and daughter, father and son, parents and children, husband and wife. It is characterized by strong, stable family organizations, by everyone in their nice, respected role, father in his role of fatherhood, mother, the children, stair steps, apple polished cheeks, all in their neat place, in their nice go to meet and close, ideal Christian happy family in their little family kingdom. And that is what Elijah is to do. He's to repair and to restore families and to emphasize child training and things for kids like camping out and, and hiking and father-son trips and mother-daughter endeavors and uh, summer camps and uh, activities for children. And when he does all of that, you can see that the work of Elijah is being done. You would be surprised how many people have been led to believe that is the character of the work of Elijah. All of this restoration of the family. What about this man, Elijah? Let's, let's consider him. Let's go back to 1 Kings 19, see something rather strange in his actions when a young man came along with him. Maybe he wasn't that young, but he wanted to begin following Elijah because of the fact that God inspired him to do so. I want you to get a little bit of the nature, the character, the trials through which Elijah went, the kind of a message, the kind of a, of a prophecy that he had to deliver to Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1 of 1 Kings. Ahab told Jezebel, Ahab the king, Jezebel his wife, all that Elijah had done, and how he had slain all the prophets with a sword. So she sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me and more, meaning a kind of an oath, and may, may God take my life, whatever it was she said. If I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Well, he was frightened to death. You see the human element of the man. He was frightened, and he fled to Beersheba, left his servant there, went a day's walk out into the cacti-studded wilderness of asps and spiders and barren rocks, and came and sat down under, it says, a juniper, but it's a broom tree like a uh, castor bean bush, and he requested for himself that he might die. Verse 4, here is the picture of an utterly frightened, totally defeated man under the edict of a woman who was like uh, a, a filthy, fallen prostitute of a woman who had established the worship of the Zidonians and pagan gods, a threat to take his life. My army is coming to look for you. Elijah fled, left his servant, walked out into the desert, sat down under a castor bean bush and said, I wish I could die. 
and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. I'm not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under the juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and here was the food. Came the second time, verse 7, and said, Arise and eat. And he arose and ate, ate verse 8, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights to Horeb, to the mount of God. Well, he came there to a cave. Why he did it? Maybe the angel said he should. Maybe somehow God revealed that he should. Maybe it was his own idea. It was an incredible journey and an incredible fast. It said he neither ate nor drank water. That is the implication, though it doesn't say so. But that was the last that he did eat or drink until 40 days later. The word of the Eternal, maybe audibly, maybe through an angel, said unto him, verse 9, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous. Now he's reviewing his past actions and his life's commitment. I've been very jealous for the eternal God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Well, I won't read all of this for a lack of time, but you can see how he goes out and he sees this great earthquake to break in pieces the rocks, verse 11, the middle part. There was a wind and an earthquake, but it said the eternal was not in the earthquake. What's that mean? He goes out, he's standing on the ledge of a mountain, and the mountain shakes, there's an earthquake and a violent storm, and the rocks are tumbling around, and lightning is booming, and thundering is crashing. But after the earthquake, a fire, fire blazing along the ground. Maybe the lightning set fire to some of the forest. The eternal was not in the fire. And after the fire, a kind of a stillness, it says in the margin, a sound of gentle stillness. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And again, he repeated what he said. He'd been jealous for the eternal and done all of this, and he was the only one left. Verse 15, he was told, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you come, anoint Hazael to be king over Israel. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of, of Abel, Meholah, shall you appoint or anoint to be the prophet in your stead. God said he was going to retire him. He said, I'm going to cause another man to come along and follow after you. He said, you go and you anoint these new leaders of these nations, and it shall come to pass, verse 17, that him that escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel. He hadn't heard of them. There was no tumult. There were no demonstrations. He thought he was utterly alone. God had to teach him that God doesn't always do everything in great violent signs or great fiery displays, but sometimes very insidiously, very quietly, very subtly, and in low key. There are those sort of underground who don't appear. Maybe they are, in fact, a kind of a silent majority. Maybe they're a silent minority who still, he said, had not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. There were far more faithful, far much, far more, rather, fruit for God's work available in the land of Israel than Elijah even knew. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And Elisha was a family man. He was out there with his family. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen. That's a whole lot of oxen. That's twenty-four oxen in all. And he with the twelfth, twelfth yoke, meaning two, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And, of course, there was great meaning in that. And he left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. What's that remind you of? 
Remind you of the time when the young man came to Jesus and he said, come and follow me. And he said, let me go home and I've got these brand new oxen and I need to break them in and try them out and then I'll come and follow you. Or another man said, well, let me go home and say goodbye to my mom and dad and then I'll come and follow you. And Jesus in both cases gave the parable and said, let the dead bury their dead. The man said, I've got to go to my father's funeral or whatever, but you come and follow me. Elisha says, I've got family responsibilities. I've got to recognize my debt to my mom and dad. I'll run back, take care of that, then I'll come and I'll follow you. And he said, well, go on back then. What have I done to thee? What have I to do you, to you? All I did was call you and throw my mantle over there to you. Interesting little byplay. And he returned back from him, and what did he do? He took a yoke of oxen, two of those big beasts, and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, gave unto the people, and they did eat, and he arose and went after Elijah and ministered to him. He went back, and in a sense, he repented by even sacrificing a part of his livelihood and then hurried to catch up with Elijah and said, I'm forsaking it. I'm not a farmer. I'm not going to plow after oxen anymore. Now I'm going to follow you. Back in the 18th chapter, and I won't read much of this. We've read it many times, is the account of how he mocked all of the prophets of Baal again and again, saying, cry louder. Maybe he's pursuing. You've read it many times, the 18th chapter and beginning in about verse 31, where he took the 12 stones, made the trench, put the water in it, drenched the offering, and then in the short 11-second prayer, it says in verse 38, the fire of the eternal fell, consumed the burnt sacrifice and everything, and Elijah killed all those prophets of Baal. Well, that precipitated the edict by the queen to kill Elijah. Something interesting about Elijah and Elisha. One is they were both celibate. Neither was married. There is no reference to a wife. The other is, they were contemporaries. Elisha began following Elijah, and on one occasion, toward the end of Elijah's life, he said, turn back and do not follow after me anymore. And Elisha said, not so, my father, calling him that as a term of deference or, or of respect. And he still followed after him, no matter what happened. Well, that was just before the vision of the fiery chariot, and Elijah is taken away, and Elisha is standing there with a mantle, and he walks to the Jordan River, and he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And smites the bank, and the river parts, and he walks across dry shod. Elisha became, in a sense, a prophet of greater miracles than even Elijah, and after he died, the bones of Elisha were in a grave, and a dead person was put and came in contact with those bones and was resurrected by even touching the bones of that prophet. I find that it's quite interesting that the two of them were contemporaries, that Elisha's ministry overlapped that of Elijah by several years, and approximately four years later, a letter came from Elijah, who was now away somewhere under protection, in retirement, because he was jaded, exhausted, simply couldn't handle it anymore, and God, knowing that, took him away from the troubles ahead and allowed him to relax. And the letter came having to do with the conditions in Israel, and Elisha read it at some point in time later on. In that sense, even as Moses and Aaron are typical of the two witnesses, Moses and Aaron, who went before Pharaoh and said, let my people go, smote the river and the land of Egypt with great violent plagues, 
So did Elijah pray, and they had a drought for three years. Elijah prayed, and fire came down from heaven and devoured his enemies. Elisha likewise was able, through the Spirit of God, to perform great miracles, and theirs was a witness to the leadership of Israel, as well as to all of the people of Israel who were gone completely into idolatry and the worship of Baal. In a sense, I see there a type of the two witnesses of Revelation, the 11th chapter. Now, let's go to the New Testament. Let me show you something in Matthew 17 and verse 11 right quickly. In Matthew 17, 11, just this one verse to set the stage for the first chapter of Luke, to which I want to go, Jesus answered and said unto him, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But, I say unto you, that Elias is come already. Seemingly a contradiction? No, he's referring, as we will see, to John the Baptist as being the one who has come already. But he is also plainly saying, Elias truly shall first come. And he says this after, if you read the chronology, John the Baptist had already been beheaded. Because that occurrence is related in the 11th chapter of Matthew and when Jesus heard about it, he goes out into a desert place apart to pray. Now let's turn to Luke, the first chapter, and begin to read in verse 5. Here in Luke, the first chapter, we read a little bit about Zacharias and Elizabeth and about the two cousins, Jesus Christ and John the Baptist, because their mothers were sisters. There was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah. There was a course meaning they did every six months get assigned of certain duties of the priesthood. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, a Levite, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. They had no child. Elizabeth was barren. They were both well stricken in years. It came to pass, while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom, his lot was to burn incense, they were praying, verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 19, it says, The angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. This was the archangel Gabriel speaking audibly in the temple to Zacharias. Now notice what he said about John prior to his conception. Here was a time where Almighty God, and you just heard reference to that of the miracle of birth and of the planning of Almighty God in the sermonette, singled out a particular seed, if this doesn't just boggle the mind, and through a miracle caused the begettal and therefore the development in the womb of a specific man, a man who was prophesied before conception. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord. How would you like that kind of a title, that type of credentials? And shall drink neither wine nor strong drink because of the Nazarite vow, the type of being a Nazarite. And he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And many of the children, I emphasize the word children, of Israel shall he turn, I emphasize the word turn. We read that before, didn't we, in the book of Malachi. 
something about children, and something about turning. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him, that is, he, John, shall go before him, the Lord their God, in the spirit and power of Elias, or Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now here, instead of saying, and the children to the fathers, as it does in Malachi, he substitutes the second part of that commission, and the disobedient, the carnal, the sinning, the God-rejecting, the pagan, to the wisdom of the just. Who were the just? What was their wisdom? to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. There's something quite interesting, even in the Annunciation by Gabriel, who was sent by God, verse 26, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, and in the Annunciation to Mary, verse 30, the angel Gabriel said, Fear not, Mary, you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, and shall bring forth the Son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David." The throne of his father David. David is called Christ's father. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. It is not called the house of Jeremiah, or the house of Zacchaeus, or the house of anyone but Israel, the house of Israel, the house of Jacob. David is called his father. Now a little later on in this first chapter, beginning in verse 57, Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. This is the birth of John the Baptist, who is to be in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And her neighbors heard, and her cousins heard, how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. They called him Zacharias after the name of his father. You know, his father didn't believe the angel at first, and Gabriel said, You're going to be dumb, you won't be able to speak a word, and he did not till the time of the birth of John. But his mother answered and said, Not so, he's to be called John. She remembered. And they said, There's none of your kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing, and he wrote, His name is John. The mother somehow knew it, even though Zacharias had been struck dumb. And they all marveled, and his mouth was open immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake, and praised God. And fear came on all them that dwelt around them, and these sayings were noised abroad throughout the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? You know who they thought he might be? Elijah, Jeremiah, or the Messiah. Later on, you will see in the 17th chapter, I won't turn back and read it, of the book of Matthew, I believe it was, I could look it up, how, no, it's a little later than that, I think maybe the 19th chapter, where Jesus says, Who do they say the Son of Man is, that I the Son of Man am? And they said, Oh, some say you're Elijah, and some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the rumors were, of course, all about the land, about a strange birth that was to come. They expected a Messiah any time. And in verse 67, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Notice the reference to their ancestors. Notice the reference always, not just praise God, but blessed be the Lord God of Jacob. Blessed be the Lord God of Abraham's grandson, the Lord God of Israel, which was Jacob's name after it was changed, or, or you know, when it was changed from Jacob to the one who prevails or overcomes with God. For he has visited and redeemed his people, and then talks about verse 7, he spoke by the mouth of his prophets since the, whole, since the word began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Interesting language. And remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham. You know what Abraham's name meant? It was Abram originally, but when it was changed to Abraham, the name means a father of many nations. Now think of the proposition that we talked about in the very beginning. And the concept many people have that the very identifying hallmark of the work of a modern-day Elijah would be the family structure and the children all in a nice, neat row, and young fathers training their boys, and young mothers training their daughters, and the restoration of the family structure. And that is the mission of Elijah. And he will have schools and camps and projects and things for children to do and teach them how to have fun God's way. That's the ministry of Elijah. Think about that as we read these words. That he would grant unto us, verse 74, that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life, and that thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for you shall go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways because it is a way of doing things, a way of life, which certainly includes the family. It certainly includes as a secondary or tertiary meaning that any true minister of God would emphasize the family. But is that the primary hallmark of the work that the modern-day Elijah is to perform? Verse 77, To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. There's the main thing to give knowledge of salvation by the remission of their sins. It said he grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts, and so on. Now, let's turn to Matthew 3 and verse 1. And here we see the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, whom Jesus Christ said came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. In Matthew 3 and verse 1, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then writes Matthew, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And you can read Isaiah 40, verse 3, and thereafter. Saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his path straight. Now, I want to turn back to Isaiah 40 right quickly and show you something that follows on just a little later. In Isaiah 40, you'll have to follow along with me quickly because actually there are three chapters that skim along here to give you a whole view of what was to be done. Chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. 
Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, always a metaphor of the entirety of the house of Israel, and cry unto her that her time of service, her time of agony, her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received the eternal's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, it was both figurative and literal. John began in the wilderness, and he was in a spiritual wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the eternal, make straight in the spiritual desert, as well as the figurative or the real desert, a highway for our God. And you can read about this, the voice saying, Cry, what shall I cry? All flesh is like grass. Man is nothing. God is everything. The 40th chapter, verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? All of Lebanon is not sufficient to burn to him, verse 16, in offerings. You could burn the herds of Texas. It isn't what he's interested in. Verse 25, To whom will you liken me, or shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and look at the creation. Look at the universe. Look at the stars. He calls them all by number. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 41, Keep silence before me, O coastlands. And it talks about the generations. And in verse 4, Who has wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the eternal, the first and the last, I am he. Notice this reference. But thou, Israel, verse 8, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Boy, I'll tell you what it would be to have your name put down and have God Almighty talking about great nations and saying, they're the seed of a friend of mine, Abraham, my friend. You think of those words. That is fabulous to think that God, who actually came down as a man and sat in the, the tent in the plains of Mamre and chatted and visited with Abraham, the one who becomes Jesus Christ, is speaking here, the God of the Old Covenant, the God of the Old Testament, Abraham, my friend. Those whole three chapters of Isaiah that are dealing with, one, the destruction of the idols of Israel the complete redemption of all of God's people, under what? Under the promises made to somebody who was God's friend, my friend Abraham. Many, many years ago I characterized it this way. I said the Bible, beginning with Genesis, the twelfth chapter, could be called one man's family. Remember, years and years ago, there was a television or a radio show that preceded the TV called One Man's Family. And I latched on to that because, you see, the Old Covenant is nothing more than the promises given to and through the seed of Abraham, which are dual promises, both of race and of grace, multiple seed, nations of kings, and that one seed, which is Christ, explained in the book of Galatians. Abraham is called, quote, the father of the faithful, end quote. He is one of the fathers mentioned hundreds of times, more than 360 times. I looked it up just this morning. Terms like that are used in the Old Testament, gathered unto their fathers, the fathers of Israel. Remember the covenant that he made with our fathers when he took us out of the land of Egypt? Our father so-and-so, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of Israel, and who? The children of Israel. The most common language used entire, through the Bible, both Old and New Testament, 
in Paul's speech before the Sadducees, the Pharisees, when he had them all at each other's throats about the resurrection, is the children of Israel, and we're so inured to it, it is so commonplace, we fail to tumble to the deep meaning of that. Who are the fathers and who are the children? Are they really John uh, Jones kids in Poughkeepsie who ought to be uh, in their nice, neat little place in relationship to John Jones because the church ought to provide study materials and summer camps and teaching so John Jones and his kids are really all straight and right and in their neat place and proper relationship to the family. And that's the work of the church, is to have a millennium now. Have the kingdom of God now on earth. Everything beautiful, everything utopian. I mean utopian education, perfect obedience, perfect discipline, perfect happy children, families just perfectly together. And if we're the work of Elijah, that's what we'll be doing. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Is that the meaning of that tumultuous prophecy? Is that what John the Baptist did? Now it says, go back to our place there after we've covered this prophecy in Isaiah, back to Matthew, the third chapter. This is he, verse 3, that was spoken of by the prophet of Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, You generation of vipers? That's interesting. Both John the Baptist, who came in the power and the spirit, if I may take the liberty, the power and the mentality of Elijah, had the same attitude toward false prophets. They just, to use an old East Texas term, couldn't avoid jobbing them a little. They had to kind of hack away at them a little. They would ridicule them. They would mimic them. They would call them a pack of snakes. So here's John the Baptist. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you generation of vipers? You pack of rattlesnakes? You bunch of copperheads? You know, I mean, viper. A pit viper is one of the most deadly of all of the poisonous snakes. It's one of the worst things you can call a person. Now, he was calling a spade a spade, because that's what they were like. Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. He said this to the religious leadership. You know what he's saying? To the religious leadership, he's saying, I hold you up in the air, and I look at you, I look at your works and your fruits and what you do. Then I take the Word of God, and I hold it up alongside you, and I compare the two. And I can't see any relationship between you Pharisees and what the Word of God says. You've got to match up. You've got to show me some fruits. There weren't any fruits to say that they were even qualified to stand in the seat of authority which they occupied. Now notice the next verse. I think it's fascinating. And think not to say within yourselves, 
We have Abraham to our father. Don't get all swelled up with racial pride and spiritual pride. Now, what is John doing? Surely he is not taking issue with the fact that legally they were Abraham's children. Then what's he talking about? He is not negating their physical inheritance because they were Abraham's children. He's negating their spiritual claim to being spiritually like Abraham was. He is saying, you bear no resemblance to the faithful obedience of Abraham. Don't claim him as your spiritual predecessor. Don't say we have Abraham to our father, because I say unto you that God is able of these rocks to raise up children unto Abraham. The pride of race the pride of the inheritance of the Jewish people and the Sadducees and Pharisees was the pride of the continual generations that extended back to the days of Moses and the Exodus. By this time it had become so deeply implanted that they were just appallingly proud. They were like a stench to the Samaritans, to Greeks, to anyone else. When you approached a proud, prideful Pharisee who was thinking, I walk in the footsteps of my father Abraham, you were dealing with a collection of vanity that was almost impossible to, to put up with. So he said, you don't need to stand around thinking about race and circumcision and your Jewish customs and Levi and Aaron and Joshua and the great accomplishments of Jephthah and David and Samson and Abraham and they're my forebears and my forefathers and I am one of their progeny. God can take those pebbles over there and raise up kids who will be Abraham's seed. What's he saying? He's saying what we know is true of black men, of brown men, and of yellow men. He's saying what God says in Galatians 3.29. If ye be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's not just of race, but it's of grace. And you can be like those stones, raised up unto Abraham. Verse 10, And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. The same direct metaphor used by the Apostle Paul, If God spared not the vine, behold, you who are the branches boast not against the vine. And John the Baptist is talking about cutting down right at the trunk or the roots of the tree, meaning the proud Jewish race who were rejecting Christ. Verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And people have so grossly misunderstood this. Whose spanner is in his hand, baptize who? Well, murder-plotting, God-rejecting Pharisees. And his span is in his hand. He will purge his floor. That's the world in general. Gather his wheat into the garner. I like that. It's the only place in the Bible where I'm mentioned but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And that's, of course, the chaff that rejects the word of God. Well, then we see the baptism of Jesus Christ. Now let's turn to Matthew, the 11th chapter. Matthew 11 and verse 1. It came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he went out and John was in prison, verse 2, and heard the works of Christ. He sent two of his disciples and they said, are you he that should come, or do we look for another? Because John couldn't understand why Christ didn't come to visit him when he was in jail. And Jesus answered and said, You go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. And what was it? 
Little kids are being given a place to play. Children are being restored to the bosom of their parents. Families are being straightened out. A strong family structure is being emphasized. Well, verse 5, the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And, verse 6, blessed is he whoever shall not be offended in me. You know, John's offense had communicated itself to his disciples, and they took offense. You know, Christ was called a wine-bibber. He did not miss a step in his ministry, a great public ministry, and he didn't do what some people would think would have been required of him, which is A, rush immediately to John's cell in prison, and B, therefore reveal himself and join John in the cell or be clamped into the next one alongside. Because some people would judge Jesus even today, as some people do, about the requirements they think are imposed upon people with regard to prisons, people inside prisons for various acts that they may have committed. Jesus knew that John was all through. He knew the time element. He knew that he must continue to do the work, and he immediately began to mildly chide those for their attitude, and he said, Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended by what they see me doing, by my ministry, by my lifestyle. Why else would he say that right there? You go tell John the fruits that he can see, and blessed is he who is not offended by what he sees. They departed. And so Jesus turned to the multitude and began to justify John a little bit. They had understood Jesus' sharpness. So he said, well, what did you expect? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A timorous man? Wouldn't you expect John to take umbrage? Wouldn't you expect him with the force of his personality to misunderstand, to send his disciples here to demand an answer? What do you expect, a weak man? So he said, what did you go to see? A reed shaken with a wind? What did you go to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I'll tell you, and much more than that. More than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Isaiah 40 again. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And I'm telling you truthfully, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Remember he said in another place, John did no miracle. Verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now this has nothing to do with the subject at hand, but I do want to explain it quickly in passing because otherwise people misunderstand. Can murderers grab, seize, rest, force their way, shoot their way, stab their way into the kingdom of God? Anybody remotely think that's the meaning of it? Well, we know better. Of course, that's absolutely ludicrous. There must be some problem with the words. Well, I looked them up again to make sure this morning. First of all, the word violent and violence. Violent is biazo, 971. It is a totally different word from that which appears in Revelation 18.21, which with by great violence is Babylon destroyed. And that word is hormia, uh, I'm sorry, hormima, H-O-R-M-E-M-A, 
3731, which means an attack precipitously done, violence. But the word here, separate violence, is if to force, as if in reflex, to crowd oneself into or to press. The other word, the violent take it by force, is biastes, coming from the same root, 973, a forcer or one who is energetic. Now, obviously, John the Baptist was an advanced emissary or a representative of the kingdom of God, and he had violently been seized and clapped into jail. There is one possible meaning, that men of violence had seized John the Baptist as a representative of the kingdom of God, had taken him by force, and violent men had put him in prison. Another is this preferred rendering by some of the commentaries, the kingdom of heaven I'm sorry, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, meaning John represents representatives of the kingdom, and those violently surging forward, or those pressing forward, take it, or seize it, showing that it must require a great deal of force, a great deal of overcoming, a great deal of energy, a great deal of zeal on the part of the individual who must press. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul said, I press for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, and said, I, he said, subdue or use the word beat or afflict my own body, lest after preaching to others I should also be a castaway. So there is some possible meaning there, perhaps two, that could be chosen. By no means, of course, does it mean that a murder-plotting Pharisee could take the kingdom of God by a violent act. Notice verse 13. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, let's follow on and get a new meaning we've never seen before, perhaps, in what he is saying. Whereunto shall I liken this generation, the generation that heard John? It is like unto children. Interesting, there we are again, Elijah and children, sitting in the markets and saying unto their fellows, saying, We have piped, and you have not danced. We have called the tune. We have mourned, and you have not lamented. We have our cliches, we have our lifestyle, and you don't stack up, you don't jive, you don't fit, you don't square with the way we do things. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he must be demon-possessed. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking. And behold, they say, a gluttonous man, and a wine-bibber, a drunkard, a friend of publicans and sinners. But, and have you ever understood verse 19 again? Wisdom is justified of her children. The word children again. Wisdom is justified by the children she produces. Wisdom is made the more wise by the arrogant stupidity of the fools who reject it. Jesus is really saying. Wisdom is justified, held up, exonerated, by the ignorance of fools who make wisdom appear so wise. Here were those who could not be satisfied no matter what lifestyle, no matter what message, they wouldn't be satisfied, and Christ likens them unto spoiled, nasty little children, saying, we call the tune, you don't dance. 
And he says, but John was one way and I'm the other. And neither one of us can satisfy this rejecting, sinning, pagan generation. Interesting language, I think, that is used in continual reference to children having to do with the ministry of John the Baptist. Now let's go to the 14th chapter in verse 11. I think I mentioned this in passing and thought that it might be the 19th chapter a little earlier, but this is where Jesus hears, and I'll only briefly refer to this in verse 12 and 13, the disciples came, took the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus that was of John the Baptist after his beheading that is covered in the first few verses of chapter 14. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. Then it goes on to say that the people began to follow him. But immediately, his cousin was dead. John the Baptist, a man of whom he had said, there is no greater born among women, a great man, a great prophet, who had come as a predecessor to prepare the way, to prepare a people for God, and to prepare a way, a trail of who knows how many thousands who had already been baptized unto repentance and who were to form the core of the first-generation New Testament church. And from those disciples, we see Peter and Andrew. They were John's disciples, those two brothers, and both became members of the disciples of Jesus Christ, Peter, one of the three greater apostles. John the Baptist had a great ministry. John was unmarried. John's ministry overlapped that of Jesus Christ. His ministry continued after Christ began his Galilean ministry. We see here that he's thrown into prison. Christ's ministry is going rather strongly now. He's preaching in Galilee in the cities of the Decapolis. John is thrown into prison and beheaded. Similarities here. Elisha succeeded Elijah, yet they were contemporaries, and they were both bachelors, neither married. Jesus did not marry. John the Baptist did not marry. The message of both was, and here it was in the third chapter where we read it in chapter 3, verse 3, repent ye and believe the gospel. Where do you see in the preaching of these men the concept that many people have of the hallmark of the work of Elijah? Running fun things for kids to do. Now, that's not bad. I mean, if any church could do that, especially at the local level, it should be done. But primarily, it is a family responsibility, is it not? I mean, is rearing your children or providing an education for your children or causing your children to love the father or respect the mother the responsibility of a strong central church hierarchy? Ask that question. Should the brethren of God's church sacrifice and pay tithes so that a strong central hierarchy of God's church could provide some education for a tiny minority of God's church? Answer that question, if you will. Just think about it. Now, what was the work of Jesus Christ, and what would the gospel of Jesus Christ affect in people's lives? Be ready for a shock, but I think you know it if you think about it. Chapter 10, the book of Matthew, beginning in verse... 34. Well, I'm going to read up to it. He begins to send out his disciples and says in verse 16, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is Matthew 10:16. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Beware of men. They will deliver you up to the councils and will whip you in their churches. And you will be brought, and obviously that is in chains or manacles. It's not being invited. 
before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles, and when they deliver you up, language of someone being put in the docket before a judge who is being dragged before a magistrate under arrest, take no thought how or what you shall speak, it shall be given you, the Holy Spirit will do the speaking. Verse 21, read our Savior's predictions about the family. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Christ says, my commission is going to do this. My word, when it sinks into the hearts of people, and remember, man cannot change man's heart. You wives can't change your husband's hearts. Husband, you can't change your wife's hearts. Parents can get at their children's little bottoms, but it's hard to get at their hearts, especially once those hearts have been turned. Only Almighty God can change a human heart. That's your volition, your conscience, that deep innermost emotion that makes you the kind of a character and the kind of a personality you are. Only Almighty God, by the power of His Spirit, can give you a total change of heart. One human being can't, by fisticuffs or psychology or reasoning or any other way, change another's heart once their heart is bad or evil toward them. You will be hated of all men for my name's sake, and they'll persecute you. And when they do, well, didn't they persecute me? The disciple is not above his master, verse 24. Now notice beginning in verse 34. Think not I am come to send peace on earth. Did Jesus Christ intend that his church in this latter day create for its members a false utopia? Did he intend we live in and enjoy the fruits of our own cloistered little kingdom? Is a strong central government of God's church to provide for the children and the members of that church a foretaste of the kingdom? by ensuring that there are no problems between and among families. Now, you know, I've got, to, I've got to make sure you understand me loud and clear. This is primarily referring to a member of a family who is singled out by Almighty God, who is called, who becomes converted and is repentant and receives the Spirit of God, but that his other family members do not. This is not like a second generation where two people marry within the church and have children, bring them to church, as many of you are, then, of course, we should expect no big divisions in families. Then the ideal state is not for any family division of any, any sort. This is talking about one member of a family, no matter his status, whether the father or the son, whether the mother or the daughter, who is converted and the other member is not. And their hostility stems from the fact that the one is called of God and the other is still in the world. That's what it's dealing with here. Verse 35 I am come to set a man at variance against his father. Yes, the word of God, and remaining absolutely faithful to the word of God, will do that if one party does and the other party does not. And the daughter against her mother, and that has happened and is happening in God's church today. Families are being divided because of the truth. 
because of those who refuse to drift apart from the body of doctrine once delivered to the saints, and those who compromise and do not, and those who believe, I must obey my human leader no matter what mistakes he makes and wait for God to work it out. That's happening. Families will not speak to each other. They will not write to each other. They deny access to their beloved flesh and blood into each other's homes. What a tragedy. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Question. Whose ministry is the greater? He who shall come in the power and spirit of Elijah, or he who shall come in the power and the spirit of God? Whose ministry was greater? That of John the Baptist or that of Jesus Christ? What did the ministry of Jesus Christ accomplish when his word reached the general public? Here it is. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. So what is the characterization of the ministry of Christ? It is a ministry which oftentimes, unfortunately, as sad as that may appear to be, will divide families, will cause parents and children to betray one another, will turn brothers against each other, and mothers against daughters, and vice versa. Parents against children, and vice versa. He says, He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So the great ministry of Jesus Christ eventually set families apart. Let's go to the 19th chapter of Matthew and read in verse 20. I'll read up to it, to verse 27. And here they were talking once again, as they oftentimes did, about who was going to inherit the major seats in the kingdom of God. And he told them this. Peter said, We have forsaken everything and followed you. And Peter had. In fact, he had a wife and children. But he had followed Christ and he had left them. Not totally left them. They got back, as we see in the Gospels, to their home now and then. And Jesus said, verse 28, Verily I say unto you that you which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that has forsaken houses, I know the feeling now, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, their great possessions that they scrimped and saved for decades to achieve, for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold now as well as then, because in the church, in the broad extended sense, any one of us could say, my home is your home. I have within the church hundreds of mothers, hundreds of elder sisters, hundreds and hundreds of brothers, hundreds of children, and we all do. We are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, and we have a close family relationship through God's Spirit in God's church. So we receive in this sense now, I could go to any city, and if I knew where a member of God's church was, and I simply called on the telephone and said, I've been hurt, I know that they would take me in and help me out. And you could do the same thing. And you know you'd have help, wouldn't you? So you've got fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters scattered all over the place. I think that Mrs. Randy Payne is going to be amazed at the outpouring concern and prayers and love that she receives as a result of what happened, the tragedy that took her young 
husband away from her. It's true. Many of us have had to forsake parents, lands, homes, families in the past, but we do receive an hundredfold now as well as in the kingdom and shall inherit everlasting life. Well, I think a light is beginning to dawn as we proceed. Now, my question, who are the fathers? We read about Elijah is to come to turn the hearts of the children unto the fathers. Who are the fathers? Let's turn quickly to Exodus 3.13. Exodus 3.13. Now, I'm going to skim over quickly just a handful of, believe me, more than 360 references. More than that by far, if you take the term father, fathers, fathers, possessive apostrophe, etc., there are hundreds of references in both the Old and the New Testament to the fathers. Exodus 3.13 says this, Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and they say unto them, and shall say unto them, I'm sorry, the God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they'll say, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? You see, he referred to the God of your fathers, to the Israelites. Verse 15, Moses moreover said, God said to Moses, you shall say unto the children of Israel, the eternal God of your fathers, who? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, turn the hearts of the children, what children? To the fathers, what fathers? Joe Jones in Poughkeepsie, whose ten-year-old kid doesn't like him so well? That's the work of the church, or is the work of Elijah to call upon mankind to repent? And when they do, what happens? What begins to dawn in their hearts and their minds? Question. How many average Baptists, Methodists, Lutheran, Episcopalians walk in the streets of Tyler? No one thing about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How many people walk in the streets of Ely, Kings Lynn, Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, or London? If you ask, who are the fathers of your country, would say, mostly Cromwell, James I, they surely wouldn't say Henry VIII, Queen Elizabeth. Who would you say would be the father of our country if you asked the average person attending the Baptist church? Why, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, the signatories of our most sacred documents that gave us our freedom. How many people walking the streets of Los Angeles or London would say, the fathers, my country, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they don't even know them, never heard of them. Who are those? A bunch of Jews running a haberdashery in, in Beverly Hills? What is the average mentality of the average unconverted person who knows nothing at all because of the great blanket of darkness? that is descended upon the Protestant and Catholic Church alike about the Old Covenant and the Old Testament of our Bible and the Word of God? Do they look to a heritage that goes back generations of which they are so proud it means more to them than the Hall of Fame of all of the football and hockey players in the world, of every great Medal of Honor winner in World War I and World War II, of the founding fathers of their nation and every hero they've ever heard of? Because they say, my heritage is the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
In Deuteronomy 1.8 and 1.11, and again I'm saying I'm picking out only a tiny fragment of the tremendous number of references that there are, Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Eternal swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to give to them and to their seed after them. And it says in verse 11, The Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as ye are, and bless you as he has promised you. Romans 15 and verse 8. Let's go back to the New Testament right quickly. To Romans 15 and verse 8 where we read, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Elijah is to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. What children? What fathers? Joe Jones in Poughkeepsie, whose ten-year-old boy doesn't like him anymore? Teenagers who are having problems with their parents because of school pressures and the peer group and drug culture and wild rock music. Provide them with a wonderful summer to try to get them back in God's way of having fun as opposed to the world's way. Why the absolute ludicrousness of that concept is like cheap tinsel trash in comparison with the breadth and the scope of what we're reading here. Yet it's something that is important. Oh, I'm not at all deprecating or saying that family unity is not important. I am saying that isn't the work of Elijah. That the work of Elijah is not characterized by uniting families which have been divided. There is no possible way that that can be so. Not in what we are reading here in the Word of God. Galatians 3.29, I've already referred to, if you be Christ, whether you're black, yellow, or brown, the people in the Philippines who will hear this tape, those in Africa who will listen to it, those in other countries, those who are black among the minority groups here in the United States, if ye be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed, and you're one of the children, and you now look to them as your fathers as well. Heirs according to the promise. What promise? A promise given to who? To Abraham, reconfirmed to Isaac, made unconditional to Jacob. The name Abraham meant the father of many nations. Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And beginning in verse 1. I want to just cite something to in passing about one of the parables in the New Testament. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the ages. Remember in the parable, and I won't turn to it, I could. It's in Luke, the 16th chapter. You can read it in verse 22. Well, I think I'll read just a tiny portion of that. I'm trying to hurry here for lack of time. Uh, I'll just read a portion of it in Luke 16 and verse 22. But the entire parable is interesting with this new little bit of uh, insight into just who the fathers are. It says, It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels, verse 22, Luke 16, into Abraham's bosom. Isn't that interesting in the light of what we're reading now? Not the kingdom of God, not heaven, but Abraham's bosom and the meaning of a close relationship with Abraham, who was called Father Abraham, who was the friend of God, 
takes on much greater meaning in the relationship in which I am casting it today. The rich man also died and was buried. We know the truth of that, and you can write for that if you haven't on the tape program read about Lazarus yet. And in Hades, the grave, and then eventually in the resurrection, he lifts up his eyes, being in torment, because he sees this wall of flame approaching, and sees Abraham afar off, even as the transfiguration gave them a glimpse of the people who will be in the kingdom. And as Christ said, you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, and you yourselves cast out. And he, the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, interesting language, have mercy on me. Abraham said this, son, verse 25, remember, in your lifetime you had good things, and Lazarus the evil, and now he is comforted and you are tormented, and neither can pass the great gulf. Verse 27, I pray thee therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Isn't that fascinating that in the analogy, or rather the parable that Jesus Christ himself uses, he refers, this is Christ, I have a red letter Bible, it's in red letters, Father Abraham, and the rich man saying, Father Abraham, one of the fathers. It's not a religious title. It is a an ancestral title. Christ said, call the man your father in a spiritual sense. That's God's title. It's an ancestral title, and the man is acknowledging it. He is seeing Abraham and acknowledging he's one of the patriarchs. A patriarch is an ancient father. He's one of the fathers that went before. Abraham said, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went into them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, If they have hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead, which shows Abraham is still dead. Now Hebrews, the 11th chapter. This takes on greater meaning to me now that I see what is really the hallmark of the work of Elijah and what is turning the hearts of the children of the fathers all about. This is the chapter on faith. And we read about Abel and Enoch in verse 4 and 5, Noah, verse 7, Abraham in verse 8, Isaac and Jacob, verse 9, Sarah, and all of these who in verse 13 it says, all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. Now I'm reading right there, and my column comes to the top right hand of my left hand page in the King James Authorized Version. And right above it it says, Examples of faith in the fathers of old time. It's correct. The fathers, again, of old. Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, verse 21. Verse 22, by faith Joseph. Verse 23, by faith Moses. Moses, meaning one born of water. Moses is one born of water. Elijah, God is God, was the meaning of the name of Elijah or Elijah. God is God. He is the true God the true worship of the true God. And what did Elijah do? He did exactly what the meaning of his name presupposes. He reestablished the worship of the true God, and he smashed the worship of the false god, Baal, with its day of the sun, its pagan holidays, and its total concealment of the plan and the purpose of God. In the 12th chapter, verse 1, what a deep and a meaningful verse with this understanding. 
Wherefore, seeing we also, and that's us here today in Tyler and the Church of God International, are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You know, it makes me really feel rather like we are not out here alone, that when God calls you, there are scattered people listening to this tape a little later on, who are absolutely alone, who are out here with no place to go to church, and they feel alone. And here is a verse that says, We are compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. God has not called us as a few scattered people, even as Elijah, who crept off into a cave and prayed to die because he said, There's nobody left but me. me. There's nobody around here but me, Lord. And God had to show him otherwise. But if you look up, through spiritual vision and realize that the greatest hall of fame of which you could ever read we just covered in the 11th chapter of Hebrews of the greatest men who have ever lived men who sat and chatted walked and talked and even got down in the case of Jacob and wrestled in the dirt with the one who became Jesus Christ of Nazareth who were called God's friend men like David a man after God's own heart and he's called our father David that when we are converted and we receive and accept God's truth and we're given God's Holy Spirit, that is our heritage. That is our genealogy. That is the proud group of men and women who have died, who have been martyred, who lived their lives in trial and testing, sometimes in fear and torment, who were martyred, torn asunder, sawed in half, as it says in the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, who are our predecessors, our ancestors, and our brethren, and who will be with us in the kingdom of God. And he says finally in chapter 12 and verse 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. What son is he whom the Father chastens not? Whereof, if you are without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons? Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reference, or deference rather, and, and reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Who is the Father of spirits? Now, who were these just? John the Baptist was said that he was going to turn those who were the rebellious, those who were sinners, to the righteousness of the just. Who were the just? Who is the father of spirits? What spirits? Now notice in verse 18 he's talking about the difference between the old covenant standing at Mount Sinai and the spiritual unseen things of heaven above and of the coming kingdom of God. You are not coming to the mount that might be touched. You can't walk up to Sinai and watch it smoking and feel it shake. And that burned with fire, no one to blackness and darkness and tempest the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, because they could not endure that which was commanded. And if as much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye, now in this New Testament spiritual administration of grace, ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, 
to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. You know what is behind you? What is above you? What preceded you in the course, the life that you are trying to live, the course or the pathway down which you are to walk in this life? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what promises are you inherit? The inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The work of Elijah is to call upon all of mankind to repent and believe the gospel. And when they do, they become the seed of Abraham and truly the hearts of the children, be they black children or the children of Israel, are turned to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not Joe Jones, ten-year-old boy in Poughkeepsie. Oh, it's not wrong for churches to establish a strong family relationship. But it's a secondary or a tertiary thing. You cannot take the great exalted ministry of the Elijah, which is to come in this age, and say it is to heal families. And most especially, you cannot say that the very church which is responsible for a great estrangement between father and son and hundreds of families claims to be fulfilling the ministry of Elijah. Can you? I can't. I see greater meaning in this than I have ever seen before the last week in reading through these scriptures, studying it, going through it again, and understanding as never before what this means. We see the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than of Abel. And he says a little later on in verse 28, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, you shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And that is the work of Elijah, the work of calling upon all of mankind, repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent, understand the truth, become a child of Abraham. If ye be Christ, then are you seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. While families and strong family structure are certainly taught in the Bible. Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is good. Sure, it's there, and it's emphasized for families within the church. But we have read what the acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ will oftentimes do in the lives of families who have not yet been called or converted. I am not come to bring peace but a sword, and a foe, man's foe shall be they of his own household. So now I think we know what the work of Elijah really is.